and rejoice in them today, giving you all the praise, for you alone are worthy. In your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Aaron Campbell. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. And one of the prayers I pray each Sunday is that we would be able to see God at work among us. And so I just want to take a quick moment to recognize God at work among us this morning by thanking Tom in particular for stepping in and helping lead our singing today. If you're not aware, that was his first time doing that, and he found out about that about 7.30 this morning. Um, Philip, who usually leads us, uh, was in the hospital for a few hours last night, um, actually very early this morning, um, and everything, all the tests came back okay. Uh, he's good. He's at home resting now, but he was totally exhausted, and so uh, Tom stepped in, and so we're so grateful for him serving us that way this morning. Um, we also have another new face who's up here this morning, um, who uh, in one of his first times here has done what I could never even attempt to do. Um, as part of Acts 29, we partner with other gospel-centered churches to plant churches in the United States and around the world. Um, I mentioned this last week, I think, that when we were away at the Acts 29 National Conference, uh, we learned that 100 church planter assessments took place in 2022, and there are 150 church plant launches planned for 2023. Um, just aware of God's grace and our ability to partner with others in seeing the gospel go forward through churches being planted. The closest church locationally that we partner with in this mission is East North Church in Taylors. And this morning we have the privilege of, privilege of hearing from East North's lead pastor, Todd Perkins. That's who this is, who also can play guitar. Um, Todd planted East North, was it eight or nine years yeah, ago? 2015. Now? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Matt and I met Todd soon after he planted, and he's been a friend and a partner in mission ever since, and now is part of our band. Um, <laughs> in addition to getting together regularly as pastors, our churches have been together for youth meetings, um, for ladies' lunch, for a retreat, uh, even picnic and a kickball game. Um, this morning, we are seeking to strengthen our partnership with Matt preaching at East North and with Todd preaching here. So would you welcome Todd as he comes to serve us this morning. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it, man. It's going to be good. Just want to play it again. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, uh, uh, Tom, I also know him as Dr. Chambliss. He's my doctor. Uh, he, he found out around 7 that he was in the band. I found out at 9.15 that I was in the band. Uh, thank you, guys. It just goes to show, I actually did that to prove a point, and the point is that anyone can volunteer. Right? You can just throw anybody up there and be like, go, man, go. So nah, I'm just, I, I am thankful that I had the opportunity to do that. And uh, I'm sitting here looking at my notes, and I haven't taken time to organize them. They're all over the place. I printed two copies if anybody wants a copy to just keep up. So just give me a minute and let me make sure I'm in, in a row here. I think this is good. I'll put you guys down. 
Uh, yeah, like, like Aaron said, my name is Todd Perkins. I'm the pastor at East North Church uh, right down the road. Been friends with you guys for since I moved here, pretty close to that time frame. I found Matt. He was hungry for fellowship, and that kicked things off for us, and I, I love Matt. I don't know if you guys already have done something, uh, and I, I, I don't expect ever anything on uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, but I'm here to advocate that you do something for Matt if you haven't done something already. He's a great guy, and do something for Aaron, too. In fact, maybe let's just skip Matt this year and just do Aaron. I mean, like, these guys get, yeah. So, like, love on them. It doesn't take much. You don't have to, like, impress them with a big check, although I'm sure they'd use it. I mean, I paid $5 for a bag of Fritos yesterday, folks. That's a lot. You should say, wow, that's a lot for a bag of Fritos, but that's all right. Maybe you're used to it and you like inflation. You just keep going. I'm just praying that uh, the tithe inflates too is, is what I'm after. Anyway, love your pastor and I uh, want to encourage you guys to do the same thing. My family was going to be here, but it's sort of crazy right now at our house. I got two out of the house. They're older, 21 and 18, both doing college and trying to be independent, and it's odd. And they were home last night. I also have a third who's 16, and my 16-year-old invited all these friends over for the afternoon, which soon led to, we're staying the night. So my wife was like, I've got eight teenage girls in my house, and I'm, I don't trust them, is actually what she said, to, you know, like, to be alone. So um, my 18-year-old plays in the band at our church when she's in town, and, and they were all going to go hear her, and so my wife just tried to herd the cats to make sure they didn't just sleep in and everything. So Brooke would love to be here with you as well, but that's where she's, a, she's at. She's being a mom. Hey, look, you got a picture of my family. That's pretty good. I like that. There we go. All right, so uh, I'm honored and grateful to be here driving in this morning. I caught what many of you might catch quite often, and that is the wonderful experience of Woodruff Road. The good thing about Woodruff Road on Sundays is it's not near as busy as the rest of the week. Uh, but what we have on Woodruff Road, obviously, is a plethora of options to shop from, right? And uh, there's a difference. I think you understand what I'm saying. Everybody's kind of keen on this. There's a difference between a generalized store and a specialized store, right? So, like, Walmart is about as generalized as you can get. You can go to Walmart, and chances are that you could probably find what you need. But the reality of a generalized store is, yeah, they may have everything you need, but they don't really have maybe the specifics. And the more important and, and careful that information or that desired object is, whatever you're after, you want to go to a specialized store to get the right one. Like, I wouldn't recommend, if you're going to be a, a decent golfer, any golfers in the room? Anybody playing some golf? No, not hit. Any Braves fans living in the depression of our day? Any Phillies fans feeling really excited? I, I'm... How about volunteers, Tennessee volunteers? Anybody? That was an incredible. Any Alabama fans upset? Anyway, sorry, I, I derailed there. Um, just coming back to the specific, right? If you know you want to get some, you want to you, you want to go to a specialized shop to get it. Like I don't go to Walmart to get a haircut, right? I mean that would be I would not trust that necessarily. I want to go to a barber shop where they focus on a certain thing. I I wouldn't want to go uh, I wouldn't want to go uh, to Target for a chicken sandwich. You know, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A for a chicken sandwich or Zaxby's or whatever because I go to the place that I need to go to to get the thing that I know I need, especially when it's important. I don't want to go to some generic place. Well, what I'm going to do for you today is take you to a specific place in the Bible, and I want to make a comment about the Bible. 
I don't want us to think of it as just this general store that has all kinds of resources. Even though it does, I know it's got all kinds of good advice for life and all that kind of stuff, but I want us to understand that as we approach the Bible, its main purpose, it's a specialty book. It's to reveal the personhood of God. It's to help us see something very specific. It's about the character of God, the nature of God, the purpose of God, what God's up to in relationship with us. And and what I know and believe about God's word as it goes from beginning to end is that the Bible is about helping us understand that God has this incredibly gracious disposition to really messed up people. Grace is giving favor to the undeserving. And what we have to understand is if we want to raise our hands and say, I'm a fan of God's grace for my life personally, what we have to understand is we don't deserve that grace because of the guilt of our own sin. And sometimes the rubber hitting the road on that for us is pretty sharp, pretty clear. We, we know exactly the sin that makes us feel disqualified. We know exactly the scenario that went down where we, where we did the dumb thing and, and we're sitting there kind of like the prodigal son, right? You know, feeding slop to the pigs. That's a metaphor. It's a picture. And, and we know we're in that moment and we go like, what am I doing with myself? I, I need to go back and get this thing right. And what we have to be reminded of is just like that story of the parable of the prodigal son, which reveals so much about the character and nature of God that is echoed throughout all the Bible, God has this incredibly gracious disposition towards us. And he consistently invites us back. You know, the prodigal son, I'm not even preaching about him today. We're going to Colossians 1 if you're wondering where we're going. But the prodigal son, he only rehearsed his apology speech. He never even got to say it. Because the moment... Daddy saw his son coming back. He w- it was on. There was a robe. There was a ring. There was a party. There was complete acceptance and love. And that's what we have in God. That's what we have in his word. So this, this book that we go to week after week called the Bible, it's not a Walmart. It's not a Target. It's not a Sam's Club, a Costco that has everything in bulk. It's a specialty shop. It, it makes good chicken sandwiches, guys. And the chicken sandwich is the gospel itself, the good news that God loves us. And that's incredibly necessary for us as we approach the book of Colossians. I don't believe that there is a book that does a better job of intentionally rooting us and grounding us in the person of Jesus Christ, who in Colossians 1... In fact, y'all want to go on there and get there? I'm just going to be bouncing around chapter 1. That's all I got for you today. In Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if we need to answer the question, who is Jesus, we go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, And we find an answer to that question. So if you've ever asked that question, who is Jesus really? Paul does an excellent job of answering that question for us in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. He's the image of the invisible God. If we are curious about what God is like, 
his character, his nature, his motivation, his behavior, we look no further than Jesus because that's who Jesus is, according to Paul. He's the firstborn of all creation. That's curious, beautiful. It tells us the same thing that's echoed in John's gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word caused all things to come into being. This Word in John is the one who's there at creation, who is Jesus, in Colossians 1. All things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created, now this is interesting, through him and for him. Everything that was created was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Guys, that's, that's mind-blowing. The Tesla in some form, was not just created for you, for the planet, or for Elon Musk. It was created in its essence through Jesus and by Jesus. And what do I mean by that? I mean like all the raw materials that exist to make a Tesla, Jesus had a hand in shaping and making available for us to have and enjoy and use. For good or for bad, right? Because that's how it goes. Anything on this planet that we can engage with could be for good or for bad. I can use a hammer for good or for bad. Uh, you can use your imagination to come up with how that might work out, but you get it. Jesus is the one who creates all things. And all things are created through him and for him. In other words, what, what that tells us as we begin to dive in and research and understand the, the, the importance, the significance of who Jesus is, how he reveals God, what we find out is that everything on life has the capacity to point back to God. Even a hammer. I don't have time and I haven't thought of it and I'm not going to figure it out right now, but I guarantee you, you give me a few minutes to think about it and we can find a way that a hammer points us back to Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm already, my brain's already working in the back of my head. It was like, well, remember a hammer nailed the nail of Jesus to the cross. And there's something about the significance of God himself creating that very essence called iron, bronze, whatever it was, knowing that he would make a hammer for the purpose of nailing himself to the cross. For us. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. A wonderful word there, preeminent. On top, number one, the most important thing. It's easy for us to understand that he's the head of the church, or I hope we understand that. You guys know Matt Rawlings is not the head of the church, right? And Aaron, you're not second head or whatever, whatever position you're supposed to have, co-head. That, that's weird, too. It's Jesus. Jesus is in charge of the church, but not just the church. He's actually the head of everything. Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19, all authority belongs to me. That came from God. God granted him that divine authority that would cause him to be the head. Paul's into Jesus, man. Again, Colossians one of the most Jesus-focused books that we have in scripture. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hey, no question, right there. That's Paul's summary statement. The fullness of God, all of the fullness of God, is dwelling in Jesus. 
He's the image of God, and the fullness of God is dwelling in him. Don't hesitate or doubt to link up with definitive language, dig your feet in, and be bold to understand that Jesus is absolutely God himself. And it's God himself who takes the form of human flesh and lives humbled and weakened by fleshly experience. And what I mean by that is, if he stumped his toe, it hurt, and he lived with a stumped toe until his physical body came around to fixing his stumped toe. I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, Jesus probably could have touched his toe and healed it. Yes, but I think he refrained from doing that as a human being to face the temptation that every human being faces and the experiences every human being faces. So he's fully God, fully human, living a life to ensure that your forgiveness made as much sense as possible in the context of a divine economy where both incredible love had to be met with incredible justice because every one of us necessitates both of those experiences in our life and in our worldview and experience. We've got to have things to handle the injustices of the world. And we've got to have something significant enough if God's going to be involved in resolving the injustices, it's got to be payment that's big enough to check that box for us. And so what, what could be more significant than an innocent man laying down his life on his own accord to take on the sins of a whole world and die the brutal kind of death that Jesus had to die? What could be more significant than that? And to add to that incredible act of justice where all sin is atoned for at the cross, we've got the marvelous good news that he raises from the dead and opens the gates, the floodgates come wide open to participate in the love of God because of that resurrection. Giving us access to forgiveness, uh, atonement, redemption, fellowship with God, to, to live not as if he's far away because of our sins, but because even though I don't deserve it and even though I'm guilty of it, it's been forgiven, it's been paid for, and now I get to walk in his fellowship and his light. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Making peace by the blood of his cross. That's, that's the good news, my friends. That's what we get to live in. That's what we get to walk in. That's what we get to function in. That's what we get to rest in. That's what allows us to kind of approach scripture that says, cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. And you might be like, but I, you don't understand. Fritos cost $5 a bag. I'm, I'm stressing out. I, I've got all these burdens. I've got all these things that bother me and upset me about the world that I live in. How can any of his anxiety, friends, you're forgetting the most important thing. Look, he died to redeem you from this life. You're an exile stuck in this life, in this body that keeps breaking down. I don't know if you guys are paying attention to that, but your body, is, my body, just keeps breaking down. Just keeps getting older. It seems like everything in this life breaks down, falls apart, gets older. 
My hope is not in this world and what I can gain from it. My hope's in the redemptive gift of Jesus Christ who's beckoning me to wake up that this, what, 70, 80 years on this planet is but a blink of an eye and that he's secured me for a future in eternity where all things are made new, including my body, including my experience of relationships, including the idea of community and the idea of politics and the idea of a world and a planet to care for. All things get fixed. Yeah, man. I get freed up when I lean into the truth of the gospel. I get bogged down when I forget it. And friends, I forget it. I forget it. I'll forget it this afternoon. Probably because I'll watch the Falcons. And I'll get disturbed. And I'll get disappointed because I'll put, even for a moment, I'll put my hope, right? My identity in a team. We've all done this. And... And then the team lets me down, and then I feel bad. I feel frustrated. What am I being frustrated for? That team doesn't mean anything. It only means what I give my heart to, you know, like, I'm gonna, my heart's going to give that value. What a mistake. <laughs> what a mistake for my heart to give value to anything other than Jesus. And that's, I think, what Paul got. And that's why Paul is so prolific at writing about Jesus. Because his heart has become captured by this idea that Jesus is God. And that what God has accomplished for us in Jesus is more important than anything else. It's at the very top of the value list for Paul. And may it be for us. You know, Paul writes this letter while he's in prison. Paul, an apostle, this is verse 1, of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy's with him. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul and Timothy writing to a young church in the city of Colossae, which was about, if I remember right, it's about 80 miles from Ephesus. And there's a relationship, there's a direct relationship between Ephesus and uh, Colossae because what had happened was Paul was in Ephesus and this guy, he shows up in verse 7. It says, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. See, Epaphras came to Ephesians, or Ephesus, and heard the gospel proclaimed. And that good news that I'm trying to amp up and remind you of this morning about the significance of Jesus' gift of justice and love renewing all things in our heart and should be evoking this state of preeminence in our life. Epaphras heard that message and was like, this is incredible. I'm going back to my hometown, Colossae, and I'm going to tell him. And so what happened? Uh, Epaphras, whether he knew it or not, became a church planner, sent out from the ministry of Paul, the evangelist, the apostle, spreading the good news. And so that's the context. And, and, and I, I want to just back up a little bit and go back to the, the thought and the reality that Paul's writing this from prison. 
and just make a brief observation about that for us right now, all right? Always worth our consideration when you get a ball and you find out he's writing from prison. What are you doing with your life for Christ when things don't go the way you want it to go? Because I don't, I don't think Paul was like, I really hope I get locked up in jail. I don't think anybody would feel that way. But here's Paul thrown into the most unwanted of circumstances, and yet he's taking full advantage of that unwanted circumstance to be an advocate for what he understands about who God is and what God's up to in the world. And the question would be, do you have the opportunity yourself to be an advocate for the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of whatever situation you might find yourself in? As I look around the room, none of you seem to be in prison right now, so you don't have that keeping you back. What's keeping you from being a stronger advocate for the reality of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Because Paul didn't even let prison keep that from getting out of him. So may we take a little bit of a moment of self-assessment for our life and go, you know, what's holding me back? Why would I not choose to be more of an advocate for the good news of Jesus Christ? And you can work backwards from there. If you say, like, well, I don't know how to do that, my Friends, you've got every opportunity in the world to advance your understanding. And by the way, that, that becomes a theme in just a minute, okay? Hold on, advancing understanding. Let's keep thinking, though, because Paul, you know his background, right? Was once Saul, you can find all about him, read all about him in the book of Acts. And Saul was an outspoken antagonist against Jesus and the church, Uh, and was converted in a dramatic fashion. Not everybody has a testimony where they get knocked off a horse, blinded, and spend days in blindness until they come to understanding of Jesus. Uh, Perhaps you do have a cool story. Use it for the glory of God. If you don't have a cool story, I would uh, challenge you to understand that your story is cool because God saved you. And that's cool. However he did it. Let me kind of advocate for a, a wonderful thing. You know, if your testimony is, I grew up in a home, we went to church, and I heard about God all my life, and I've been following him all my life, praise God. That's an awesome testimony. So whatever it is, Paul has this experience where his heart becomes transformed by the power of God, and he becomes the most significant theologian, church planner, and disciple maker in history. And here's really the point to take away from that observation about Paul himself as we think about him and how he writes this book. No one is out of reach of the grace of God, right? You You could stand up in this room right now and start killing people in this room, and God could still transform your heart. Because that's the kind of activity that Paul was interested in. That was the kind of thing he paid money to make sure happened. Go in there, beat them up, rough them up, kill them if you have to. They're going to jail, all of them. I hate this Jesus guy. Converted. What that tells us is that no one is out of the reach of the power of God to change their heart and mind. No one. And what that means is that we ought to live a life that maintains a level of trust in God for people as we watch them do dumb things, watch them make big bad mistakes, watch them themselves dig deeper holes into whatever weird pit of life that they are digging. 
we must not give up hope in the power of God to rescue them. And we must also not feel what can be an experience of overwhelm as we try to rescue them, right? Have you ever had that? You know, one reason someone might not be getting out of the mess that they're in is because you keep trying to save them and you need to just let God save them. You have to just step back and be like, you know what, I trust God. God transformed Paul, who was as much against God as I can imagine. And if God can do that to Paul, he can do it to those that we pray for, that we care for. We can trust God for people. So that's good news to me. Last statement to observe here in this introduction is this repeated frame that we'll find in many of Paul's writings as he begins his letter, the idea of grace and peace that comes from God. Uh, and man, it's, it's full of good news, right? I mean, let, I've already talked about grace. Here's Paul talking about grace. It, it's the reality and the gift of the gospel. Paul's reminding them of it at the very beginning and trying to set the stage and frame up the whole book with this idea that I've got good news to give to you. I, I, I can't think of anything much better than grace and peace, Right? That's what you want. That's what you need when the Braves get knocked out of a wild card game. You need grace and peace. You know, calm down. It's okay. And that's what God is eternally offering us through his gospel. Hey, people, all the things, all the burdens that you carry, all the nonsense, all the consequences for your, your dumbness, right? And hold on, let me just time out. I'm the dumbest person in the room, Okay. Uh, because I know me better than anyone else, and I do dumb things more than I know about your dumb things. So count on me to raise my hand if you think to yourself, I don't like a pastor who might call me dumb. Look, I know you're dumb because I know I'm dumb. And what I mean by that is I don't always do what's good, right, and perfect. Do you? Do you always do what's good, right, and perfect? Uh, Okay. Well, that means we're dumb. Or as my teenage kids uh, were saying for a little, a little while, big dumb. That's what they were saying. Oh, that's big dumb. All right. God can take big dumb people like me and provide all that is necessary so that I can experience and live in grace and peace. And that's Paul's introductory statement for this book. And then he rolls into this next thing, which, looking at the time, what, what does Matt usually preach to? 12.30, 12.45, something like that? I, I can keep going? I don't know. Who, who can I look at? You guys tell me when to stop. Just start coughing. Start coughing awkwardly when it's time for me to stop. <coughs> All right, do that. All right. We're in, we're in the second part, this, uh, this Thanksgiving. It's really when Paul starts getting into it. Verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 through 8. Uh, if we can get it on the screen, that's great. Uh, Colossians 1, 3 through 8. This is how he starts his letter off, right? This is what he's talking about. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, who did he hear that from? He heard it from Epaphras, the church planner. Remember who heard the gospel in Ephesians and went back to Colossae? And planted this church. So Paul's communicating 
in a connected way. But right now, Matt's preaching in my church. I'm preaching in his church. It's kind of, I mean, there's something of that going on where there are these churches that are networked in the gospel to talk about one another. And Paul says, when I think about you, I'm, I'm thanking God and I'm praying for you. Because, why? I know you have faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does so among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and it's made known to us your love in the Spirit. It just... If I can pull it off, if I have time, I'm going to push. Three noteworthy observations in this section. Number one, let's pay attention to the fact that Paul is thankful and prayerful for the church. Right? I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying right off the bat. He's thankful and prayerful. Let me ask you a question. Are you sincerely thankful for your church? Not the building, not the gathering, not the 501c3. The people in this room, are you thankful for these people? Because if you were like Paul, you would be in a prison cell and not have the advantage of mutual fellowship. Like you have full advantage right now. You can go out to eat after service with somebody today. You can invite them over for dinner tonight. You can call them up and say, can I get coffee with you later this week? I have some stuff I need to just unload and get prayer over. You have this free and full accent, access to one another. And the, the context of the one another is that you all understand that you're sitting under the head who is Christ who is wanting to deliver across the board to every one of us grace and peace. And guys, you, you carry that thematic reality among you, and it is shared among you. And that's a gift that not everyone has access to, like you have access to. Do you live in thankfulness for the body of Christ that is your body that you get to connect to because you should live in that thankfulness. Our church is getting to, ready to read through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, and his first chapter just hammers that point. Just says, guys, if you are not thankful for the access that you have and the comfort that it brings to be in fellowship with one another, what are you thinking? And you know Bonhoeffer, he's in prison writing this book too. Guys, don't wait till you don't have it to sort of miss it. Be thankful. Be thankful. He's thankful and he's prayerful. And what's really unique about what we have in this passage is we actually have the kind of prayer that Paul would be praying for the church. Let's tune into this, okay? Look at verse 9. 
This is, Paul's about to kind of express what's been on his heart and mind for the church family, for the fellowship, for the koinonia, for the ecclesia, the, the church, Christ's body. He's saying, this is what's on my heart. Verse 9, from the day we heard, heard what? That Epaphras had brought that gospel back and that Colossae had received it and that a congregation of followers of Jesus were beginning to kind of get together and network and support and love one another and encourage one another of the gospel. Since the day Paul heard that, he has not ceased to pray asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember I said that would come up later. That's come up right now. Here it is. He's praying that the church become more aware of their understanding of the gospel. More aware of the significance of Jesus. More mindful of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. More in tune, awake, inclusive to the goodness of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. To walk, he continues, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Qualified you. It's a very distinct word. Uh, Chapter 2, somewhere around verse 16, the heading of that passage in my Bible, which is ESV, says, let no one disqualify you. Why? Well, because if God has qualified us, then there is no disqualification, including whatever dumb sin you might have pulled off. Your dumb sin doesn't disqualify you. It actually makes you a great candidate for the very thing that God came to do, and that's forgive big dumb. You are not disqualified. You are qualified in Christ. You do dumb things. You have to face the consequences of your dumb things. You do lose trust with people. You have to navigate all of that. But it doesn't change what Christ has done for you and what Christ thinks of you. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Woohoo! Happy for me. This is what Paul prays for the church. It's not just theological rhetoric, it's functional prayer. He's praying that they would increase in their knowledge of the gospel, that their spiritual wisdom and understanding would be elevated, that their walk would match their talk, that the church would bear fruit. And what that means is fruit's good, guys. Watermelon, that's good stuff. Blueberries, I mean, some, you know, you got to get the right ones, but you know what I'm talking about. When you hit the right sweet spot, you're like, oh, these blueberries. Good fruit. 
that they would increase in the knowledge of God. That's twice that's mentioned. It's actually four times between increased knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God. God, you, you need to grow in your understanding. Be strengthened by power for endurance with joy. He's just throwing in adjectives, all right? And that the church would give thanks because of what? Because of being qualified through the gospel. That we would be joyful. So I think this is a good opportunity. We're, we're nearing the coughing time. Time to cough. With, with Paul's framework and encouragement of praying for the church and providing an example of prayer for the church, I want to I just say, like, when was the last time you prayed for your church? And maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you did it this morning, maybe you do it regularly, I don't know, but man, why not, why not do it now? Why, why don't we take a few minutes to pray together for the church and allow verses 9 through 14 to be sort of a guide to help us understand how to pray for our church. You guys tracking with me? You think you understand the assignment? So what I want you to do is I, I want you to get in groups of maybe like four or five. We don't want to get too big because we want as many people to be able to pray as possible. I'm going to mess with your you know, seating experience here. If, if you would not mind, if you would humor me to get into groups of four or five, to open up the Bible and to, to pray through verses 9 through 14. And if I may be so bold as to suggest, one way to kind of move it along is just take, have one person pray one verse over the church. And then move to the next verse, just go in a circle. Could, could you guys make that happen right now? I know it's like, well, this is weird, what are we doing? We're moving around. We're going to pray. Can we do it? I give you permission to move now. You may now head in the direction of grouping up four or five people. This is going to be beautiful, guys. We're going to pray for the church. It's going to be a good day.